Welcome everyone to the 83rd episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I am Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, first off, welcome back to uh, Montreal. So I think this is I think this is the first one since you're back. No, I believe so. Um, you know, definitely different change of scenery. Not a lot of sunlight right now, even though it is spring up in the Great White North. But uh, you know how it is, right? Next seasons change pretty quickly, and the market moves pretty quickly too these days, mm-hmm. as I'm sure we've seen. Which so, uh, come on. Yeah, exactly. Interesting week with the commodities and everything. So. Yeah, a lot of the juniors are moving. A lot of gold and silver producers are on the move right now. Um, it's an exciting time. If you've been planning and prepping for this moment, um, you're you're doing pretty well right now. And um, I think it's really interesting to talk about, obviously, momentum and entry points, because that's really, if you can time that perfectly, I'm not saying anybody can time it exceptionally well. Uh, maybe our guest here might be able to, but um, if you can time an entry with momentum, you can make a pretty significant amount of coin in this volatile market. But uh, Nick, you've had some good wins too on like some gold exploration plays, so I'm very impressed well, yeah. with that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right now we've got well, we've had the 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 company that Johnny developed there um, originally, Copper Bank, turned into Faraday. It's been in there for a long time. We've got Delta, a couple little other ones there, but like it seems like copper and gold are doing really well. Silver, my silver juniors are not moving too much right now, but copper, gold, and lithium ones, are they're, they're moving pretty decently well right now. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I feel like this is just a start. So I'm, I'm excited. So, so uh, w- yeah. we, we, we brought on somebody today that I think has, has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to uh, picking uh, chart entry points, uh, using momentum, talking about macro trends as well and um we're absolutely thrilled to have him on here um this gentleman entered the financial services industry in 1975 particularly on the future side uh, and he joined the ef hutton's international commodity division in new york city um he studied under david johnston head of hutton's commodity division and he was the chairman of the comax back then uh, in the 1980s um, this gentleman began to develop his own uh, momentum-based method of technical analysis i love technical analysis by the way big fan and he learned early on that orthodox price chart technical analysts left many unanswered questions and too often deceived those who trusted in price chart breakouts, support resistance and so forth a lot of interesting uh, trends here uh, in 1987 uh, he technically anticipated and caught the crash. Uh, it was then that he decided to <clears throat> develop his structural momentum tools into a full analytic methodology. And in 1992, um, he decided to embark on his own venture um, and really focus on his own path, focusing on momentum structural analysis. He's the CEO of Momentum Structure Analysis. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Michael Oliver. Hi, Dan and Nick. Good to be here. So, Michael, first off, to begin with all our podcasts, we always like to kind of get a, a, a sense, an idea of who the people we bring on is. So can you just, you know, we'll put aside the, the technical analysis stuff and just kind of tell us about you, your history, how you got into the space, how you got into commodities and just, you know, what leads you to this point in time? Well, you know, how people end up doing something in their career they didn't plan on, you know, mm-hmm. okay. I was uh, headed to political philosophy as a professor, okay, working on a PhD, University of Hawaii in 1973, and then the the global stagflation hit, okay. Philosophically at that time, 73, 74, I was in the early part of the emergent libertarian movement. There were probably a couple hundred of us in the country, literally. Uh, Dr. Murray Rothbard was the, Mm -hmm. what you call the chief intellect of that, that emergent movement. Uh, he had recently split off from Ayn Rand's group. <clears throat> He'd been part of that group. Greenspan was also part of that group. Um, and he befriended me and uh, I interviewed him in a newspaper that I had. I, I published a newspaper back then called The New Banner that was a, the first nationwide libertarian slash objectivist newspaper. We had all of a couple hundred subscribers. That's how big the movement was. <laughs> So, but why didn't I pursue that? Well, the global recession hit. It was global. Stagflation. Term the economists never expected to concoct. Uh, And I realized at that point, 
half, having completed all my classwork and stuff, it's only left with my dissertation. That there's no future there because if I wasn't going to get hired, universities were already sort of disregarding tenure anyway, and we we're headed for you know hell in, in terms of ec economy. And a friend of mine joined Merrill Lynch Commodity Division, and he said, "Come on in, the water's fine." Okay, so I I threw out my fishing line and, and uh, EF Hutton in New York, their headquarters. I got interviewed there and, and I got hired and I, I apprenticed at EF Hutton in New York, like you said. Uh, I was there for a year and a half. And I didn't know anything about technical analysis. I knew about gold philosophically because I was a libertarian. After all, most people don't know this, but there was a group in New Orleans called the National Committee to Legalize Gold. There was a libertarian group that got the lobbying done that legalized the trading of gold in the United States in 75. Mm. Anyway, so gold futures started in 1975 on the COMEX, Commodity Exchange in New York, along with silver and copper, which had always been traded there. And I got hired by Hutton in April of that year. And so it was like, I was an apprentice. I was in my early 20s. And my boss taught me bar chart technical analysis. You know, like everybody sees you open the Wall Street Journal, there's the bars, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, and so I, I learned it that way from the ground up. And so it was a learning process. I mean, I, I understood gold philosophically as real money, as an, in effect, a statement against government. Okay, we don't want your fiat money, we want real money. And ultimately history, keeps coming back to that. And we're headed back toward it now in a huge way. Okay. But I didn't know markets and I didn't know technical analysis. But over the years, I accumulated, you know, the normal knowledge, read all the books and so forth. But in 87, it was very interesting. I was an independent broker in, in the Hutton system, uh, separate out of New York at that time. Actually, it wasn't with Hutton, it was with another firm. But I plotted the S&P 500 monthly bars, you know, the high, low, close each month, just like anybody would. But I oscillated them against a three-quarter moving average. So what do I mean by that? At the end of every quarter, you got a one-quarter average. You average with the prior two, you got a three-quarter average. So it's like almost like a 200-day duration. And that would be my zero line. And then I would plot the bars, the high, the low, the close of each month, how much over or under that average was the action that, that month. And so I created an oscillator. And when you saw the 87 market price-wise, it was like this, upward curving. It was hard to draw a trend line. In fact, it, it got steeper and steeper. So it was really difficult. But when I drew the momentum chart, it was a floor. Bang, bang, bang for a couple of years hitting the same exact oscillator level. In the second week of October, it broke that level. And within a matter of a week or so, 35% drop, crash. And no, I didn't catch it big, but I did catch it. I wasn't wealthy, so I couldn't put a lot in it. I, mean, I made 10 grand or so, you know, whatever. But anyway, I caught the move. And I, I was very pleased with the methodology. And I therefore worked hard to develop it more and more on different timescales, such as, you know, you can oscillate price versus momentum monthly versus the three quarter, which is sort of long term. You could do annual momentum, you could do daily, you could do all kinds of timescales of measurement of market trends. And I was asked by a major bank back then in 1992 to see if, if, if I would provide them the research uh, and they would pay me soft dollar. Soft dollars when a company that generates commissions that manages assets like a bank trust department, let's say, they can take a certain percent of the commissions they generate through the, a broker dealer and use it to pay for research. It's called soft dollar. And so I get into the soft dollar business. 2015, we opened up to retail subscribers. So, you know, 20 years later, uh, but mainly our clients were institutional type, you know, um, mutual funds, hedge funds, trust departments of banks and stuff like that. Uh, so we've been around for 30 plus years now providing a unique technical type analysis of markets. We don't just look at gold. We look at the stock markets, not just the US, but foreign markets, bond markets, foreign exchange, and broad view of commodities. 
with an emphasis though, I have to admit on gold and silver. And I have one, a couple of observations if, if you want to hear me wax on here. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. But we're, we're in my career, which is now, you know, since 1975, I've never seen so many tectonic plates of size bumping into each other with highly positive or highly negative impact on one another. In other words, they're not just floating off in the distance doing their own thing. They actually are connected. And you, instead of, if you're, like if you're in gold, you shouldn't just look at gold or silver. Mm -hmm. You should look at the bond market, the stock markets. You should look at assets because it's the movement of these assets right now that I think is historic. And I don't think we've seen the consequences yet. We've only, been, only peeled back the beginning of it. Uh, I think we're about to enter probably the most dynamic and for some people disastrous financial market situations we've ever seen in 100, 200 years. And I think the reason for that is that the boom bust cycle that the Federal Reserve sponsors, you know, every 10, 20 years, there's a boom and then there's a bust and there's a boom and a bust. But if you look at them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and take a, a Fed funds chart, you know, their, their interest rates, they control directly and overlay it on a stock market. You could sort of see why they're booms because they're driving rates down mm -hmm. below what market reality of pricing of money might otherwise be. It's like, you know, if, if eggs were free, everybody be eating eggs, you know, like, you know, everybody go nuts. Well, in a, we've seen the biggest boom, I think, bubble in U.S. stock market history between 2009 and 2021. If you go back and look from 1923 to 29, or look at the bull market in the 70s, or look at the bubble, the so-called bubble, the dot-com bubble in 2000, which was only preceded by about three or four years of upside and about a tripling in the price of the market, or look at the real estate peak in 2007, which was only really a doubling from the bear market low in 2002 for the S&P 500, that is. But from 2009 to 2021, the S&P went up seven-fold. NASDAQ 100 went up 16-fold. And if you look at a Fed funds chart, you can easily understand why. They stuck a needle in everybody's arm. And they kept it there, not for a year or two, but for a dozen years. Mm -hmm. So if initially you might have thought this is hallucinogenic money cost, you know, it's not real. Pretty soon you started to believe it. And heck, there's some guys in the financial world, let's say CFOs of companies, that half their career was spent looking at money priced at levels that's not real. Yeah. <laughs> Cost of capital, right? Yeah. And so yeah. think of the decisions that individual families made, corporations made, state, city governments made, even the federal government made in terms of, hey, the cost of money is this, therefore we can do that. Mm -hmm. Well, but it didn't just last a year or two. It was a dozen oh, years. Okay. So now that's the reality in, as far as I'm concerned. We have the biggest bubble in U.S. stock market history, and I think it's broken. Yeah. The only issue is how does it unfold? Mm -hmm. And it's unfolding so far the way we thought it would. We, said, we argued in January of 2022, so a year and a couple months ago, that the NASDAQ 100 had topped. A month later, February of 2022, we said S&P is topped. And the first year down, we had a 30% plus drop in NASDAQ and a 20% drop in 2022 in the S&P. Now we're getting this wheel spinning, redundant rally effort. We thought the first year would be, quote, an arm wrestling match. And that's so far what it's been. In other words, it's confusing. Yeah. You know, you can, you can. You can believe in it almost like, oh, party's on again. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, the party's not on again. And when it unwinds in the next leg, and I think gold knows this. That's why gold, you know, like last year, if you look at the close of gold in 2022 and look at the close in 2021, it was unchanged. S&P was down 20, NASDAQ down over 30, real estate down over 30. T-bonds are down over 30%. I mean, there was nothing that was unchanged, Hardy. And silver was actually up 2% on the year. 
despite its volatility. Mm -hmm. They knew something. What did they know? That the Fed and the other central banks would ultimately have to not only reverse, but panic the other way. And that hasn't happened yet, yeah. but bet on it. But yeah, you think it'll happen? Oh, yeah. Because there are certain asset categories that the Fed, when they prick the pin in that big bubble, they're not real smart. They're not market savvy. They didn't realize that the bubble they were breaking was not, quote, commodity inflation. It was the stock bubble of a dozen years that they themselves had created by creating zero interest rate money and liquidity like we've never seen. And so when they punched the hole in that thing, thinking they were going to stop inflation, they did. They stopped the inflation of the stock market bubble, mm -hmm. which had been inflated by monetary expansion. Not come so on. real, real, real rates are still high, is what you're saying. Is what yeah, that's yeah. And, and, and the bubble, there, there's no bubble in the commodity markets. You know, they do this yeah. thing about year over year. We've never seen inflation like this for 40 years. Baloney. Yeah, the rate of change from 2020 to 2021 was enormous. 22 versus 20 was enormous because commodity prices were in the sewer. And look at punch up a chart of the Bloomberg Commodity Index and go back to oh, 2008. That index was in the 200s, well up in the 200s. And even in 2011. And then it came down and got to almost into the 50s. And it laid there between 2016, 17, 18, 19, and 20. While gold doubled, commodities were still in the sewer. And they didn't make their low till 2020. Gold had already doubled, knowing something. And then the Bloomberg went from like a low at 58 to 140 area, brief spike. And all of this occurred before the Ukraine-Russia event, which occurred in February of 2022. The commodity index and most commodities, oil included, peaked like weeks or a month after that event. They'd already had their move before the event. So for the central governments to come around and say, oh, we blame it on that event, you baloney. Look at a chart, okay? It, so anyway, I, it's I, funny, I, I, go here and say something. I, I, go I was just gonna say, I, I, love, I love what you said, Michael, because anybody that understands technical analysis, and again, there's, there's flaws in it too, like don't get me wrong, but like all you have to do is look at the chart. <laughs> and I always, uh, Nick and I get like questions from like, you know, friends, family, people, clients that we work with. They're like, how did you know that that was like, it was the top or that was the bottom? And I'm like, just, just open the chart. It's telling you the full story. So I, I agree with you. It's, there's always that media induced hype that gets pumped into the story. But at what point is that sustainable for what is essentially happening? Cause I agree with you. We are in a something that I think is called a secular bear market, and usually during that time, um, you know, large caps are not going to do really well, and the charts are all streaming the same thing. So I'm curious to know what what you're seeing on that, and I think it kind of reinforces what you're what you're saying right now with with the whole uh, Fed induced uh, <laughs> bubble that we had with stocks. Well, it's not just Fed; it's the BOJ and, and ECB uh, yeah. as well. You know, the Western uh, economy. Yeah, exactly. The whole they West they did economy. it full throttle, and they did it for more years than they've ever done it before. And therefore, you've got drug-induced consequences. You know, twelve yeah. years of hallucinogens. Okay, and on a on a micro level, not this is don't think macroeconomics. Think you know, a family makes plans based on you know they buy a home mm -hmm. based on one the cost of the you know the mortgage interest rate level, the price of the home, their income level, all kinds of assumptions based on a highly stimulated economy. And if those assumptions are wrong, ultimately, and they get ripped asunder, then all their plans go out the window and they made a huge error and it, it's hard to rectify it without maybe you know going bankrupt or selling and, and renting somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, it's not just micro, but, you know, you go to a corporation level and state and city governments, watch the muni bonds, watch high yield corporate debt, because these are asset categories, which when they collapse, the central bank intervenes to protect them. 
And you've got the T-bond market, for example, the, the quote, safe market, was down more last year than was the stock market. So the old 60-40 rule, you know, if you put 60% of your money in stocks and 40% bonds, you're balanced. Yeah, right. That was a dead it, strategy yeah, last year, yeah. though. You yeah. got hung twice last year. <laughs> now, the, the problem is, so did high-yield corporate debt, and so did muni bonds. And if you go back to March of 2020, when the, the, you know, the corona thing, and the Fed came in and bought ETFs, outright bought them, just like the, the Bank of Japan had been doing for years. They bought muni bond ETFs and high yield corporate debt ETFs and drove them off the page along with the stock market at the same time. When they quit buying those bond, those instruments in late summer of 2021, those markets peaked and started to ooze down. Now the stock market kept going up until early 2022. But as soon as the Fed quit buying those debt instruments, which they regard as must be defended, municipal debt, state debt, high-yield corporate debt, when they quit buying, those markets immediately peaked. They didn't collapse, but they just started oozing and oozing and oozing. And six or so months later, the stock market peaked. And then last year was horrendous for all these asset categories, including T-bonds. We think in the short term, meaning for the rest of this year, let's say, next several quarters, probably T-bonds, government bonds now, might be a safe place to hide money, meaning they're not going to collapse anymore. I think you probably saw the low for a while. That's not the case, though, I don't think, with the stock market. So I think you're going to get, again, that divorce where, in fact, bonds do provide some safety. Not a bull, big bull market. I mean, just, you know, maybe they go up 10% or something uh, in price and drop in yields. So not some massive bull market in T-bonds, but enough stability to induce fearful investors and portfolio managers who, if the stock market starts to roll over again and they say, good grief, this has been 10, 11 months of buying this beast and it's not going up. Where can I go? And I think they'll move some of that money into back into T-bonds, and it'll work this time to some extent. Uh, but, Shorter term bonds though, right? Not longer No, I'm duration. thinking the longer term, the stuff that's outside the, the Fed's immediate control, like 30-year, 20-year type stuff. 30-year? Yeah, okay. the long term, uh, which they made a low last October in the bonds that we, we predicted there would be a low at that point, and we had a price zone for like for TLT, which is a very popular yep. ETF, and for 30 bond futures. So they went to our target zone, went like a percent below them in price, and then you haven't seen that low since. That low is probably going to hold for a while. I don't think the October low is going to hold for the stock market. That's when the NASDAQ and the S&P made their second low of last year. But we put out a chart in a weekend report last weekend, and the headline of the report was, stock market continues to rip. R-I-P, exclamation. And then we said, oh, by that we mean rally in place. Okay. <laughs> and we showed, a, we showed a chart going back a couple of years from the, from the peak to the 2022 lows, the June low and then the October low. And there's this rally in June, July, August last year. Then it goes down, makes a new low. Then you rally from the October low and you come back down again, not new low, but you come back down. You go up again, you come back. There's like three or four rallies since the June low of last year, where it's redundant. But each rally makes people feel like, oh boy, oh boy. But it's really just, it's, it's duplicating the tape. And though you could draw a line sideways from the June low of last year to the August rally high, it was a nice rally. Split that rally in half and draw a line sideways on the S&P and all you're doing is this. And yet everybody's- It's a, can it's a kangaroo. <laughs> yeah. And everybody, every rally makes people think, oh man, look at it. It's going, it's up on a year. Yeah. It's, it's a sucker game. It is. And I follow a lot of, uh, I follow a lot of like groups on Facebook of like uh, investor groups on Facebook, thousands and thousands of people. And you can see the excitement. It's literally being replicated as it was two years ago where people are like, oh, it's game on again. It's, we're back in. Like, and people are just going all in again on a risk and you kind of see where like risk assets are just moving up again. Yeah. 
it's uh it's i think it's going to be very bad for those folks because and i think portfolio managers who've been around a while like the ray dalios of the world uh they said they're skeptical of this and i think that's why for example when everything collapsed last year all asset categories even commodities had a correction mm. from their early 2022 high to late in the year uh nothing like the stock market by the way and nor did they go back to anywhere they had like a 30% pullback to their bear market low. So and we've, we think commodities are going to have another up leg, by the way. But during that time, a lot of major asset managers who've been around, somebody was buying gold. I mean, it's just an objective fact. If, if S&P was down over 20, NASDAQ down over 30, T-Bond, and gold was unchanged, why? Central banks. Yeah. Some central banks. I think a lot of large portfolio managers were simply saying, okay, you know, they're going to degrade the money unit because when this stuff hits the fan in the next leg down, they're going to flood the market with dollars, with yen, with euros, whatever it takes. And I want to be in something safe. And uh, I think that's what that was. That was a statement in effect by being unchanged on the year. And now gold, instead of that, by the way, that unchanged level was 1820s. Yep. 2021 close, 2022 close. We're now above 2000. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, for the third time. Uh, it's ain't going to stop this time. Uh, what, what was interesting, though, about gold that I found so fascinating was, you know, yes, the, it closed at that 1820 level at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year. But throughout the whole year, it was like the most volatile swing in, in gold prices that I think we've seen in probably almost like 20, 25 years, right? Because gold has always just been like, you know, 1,500, 1,200, and then it rips above. Oh, and then that whole year last year, it's just been so volatile. So well, like- set up a is range. A yeah. Ex exactly. Yeah. So good. No, I was just going to say like, so is that a combination of like the central banks, ECB, are they like, they know what's coming. And they're protecting themselves too. Russia knows what's coming. China knows what's coming. They've thrown out US dollars at this point. You know what I'm saying? So the thing that I'm always envisioning, I'm like, why is it being suppressed? Is it because there's just all these cheap like derivatives being flown around by like these other institutions that are trying to manipulate it? Like what's what's what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I can I understand there's been research and people who say that, you know, silver particularly has been manipulated and, and gold. And all I remember is back in the 1976 to 1980 bull market gold, where gold went from $103 low in August of 76 to $850 high in January of 1980. And despite the fact that in the last year or two of that rally, the IMF dumped more gold, tons of gold. They auctioned at submarket prices. And initially, these massive dumpings would cause a sell-off in gold. But after a while, gold just thumbed its nose and went right through them. Because gold is bigger than government. Governments are historically pipsqueaks in history, okay, compared to real money. Um, and if they try this time to protect the assets that they want and need to protect, namely debt markets, especially government related, not just their own, but cities and say states, they're going to have to print. That's what they were created for in the first bloody place, is to print money, to create rates, money rates that are lower than what they might otherwise be in reality. You know, Can you imagine if we had a government body and we all accepted it? The price beef, okay? The government monopoly over the pricing of beef. Can you imagine the distortions in supply and demand you would get if market forces weren't involved in the pricing of beef, okay? Uh, you know, if they wanted to artificially put beef down in price, therefore they would create, what, a shortage of producers of beef, okay. But we accept the notion that the medium of exchange can be manipulated by a central bank for artificial reasons, for policy reasons, because they know better than we do what the price of money should be. Well, you know, we're going to pay the dues for that. 
And this time the dues we're going to pay are bigger than ever because the boom that preceded this bust is like quadruple or quintuple anything we've ever seen before. And, uh, and by the way, if they start to cut rates, which a lot of people in the stock market are hoping yeah, they'll do and anticipating that they will soon do, and therefore they're sort of cheering the negative data points. If we can get a negative data point, oh boy, that's good for the market because that means the Fed's <laughs> going to have the plateau and it'll go. Through. Go back and look at the history of the Fed funds and look at what happened when the Fed one raised rates for a period of time. The market got in trouble, topped, started down, and then they started to lower rates. It didn't help. Mm. The Fed lowered rates. The peak in Fed funds rates was in July of 2007. The stock market peaked in October of 2007 at a fairly high rate level. We were over 5%, I think, at that time. By May of 2008, market had already had its first leg down and then had a rally into May of 2008, not back to the highs at all, about halfway back, just like we are now. The Fed had dropped rates to less than 2% between the summer high of 2007 and May of 2008, and yet it didn't help the market. And they cut rates all the way down and the market collapsed anyway. And you can go back and look at other bear markets and see the similar pattern where once they start cutting rates, it doesn't matter. The bubble is broken. It's, it's too late. Is, it's too late. Yeah. Market yeah. takes over. Okay. And you have a massive so, inflationary, like you have the massive inflationary impact. That's kind of, that's a differential uh, aspect of the equation relative to the past. You have deglobalization, which the past was mostly globalization effect. Mm -hmm. You have geopolitical chaos thriving. You have a potential well, what looks to be a inflationary commodity uh, aspect of it, which will continue to drive prices up. So like when I see people talking about these things, we're re reducing or lowering rates again is going to somehow do something. It's like, well, in the grand scheme of all the other variables, it might not actually do much anymore. It might just seem like it might drive you to take on risk again, but it might just be a little, you know, just a little up and then right back down. That and ultimately, when they create a river flow, sometimes it goes where they want it to go. Like they created a river flow between their 2007 rate hike peak at over 5%, mid 2007, all the way down to 2009, they cut rates, cut rates, cut rates. The beneficiary was not the stock market, but there was a point at which we got into the 600s on the S&P that asset managers said, oh, okay, now I'll take this river flow and divert it into a risk asset that seems to be fairly priced now, the stock market. It had gone from 1570 to 667 or something. And, you know, okay, now, okay, I'll take that river flow that you've created and I'll put it into that market. And sure enough, it worked, but it doesn't go where they want it to go every time. Look, look at the late 1970s. You know, it didn't help the stock market, it helped commodities. And we argue technically that the commodity upturn which as I've explained right now, the Bloomberg, for example, is trading at 108. In 2008 and 2011, it was well over 200. Okay, so don't give me this story. The commodities are priced off the page. They're not. Yes, their annual rate of change was dramatic, but that's because they were coming out of the sewer. Theoretically, zero price levels. So when they exploded, we, we put out a report in October of 2020 Commodities were then at 70 on the Bloomberg. We said there's going to be a commodity explosion. And it was going to be across the board. And we didn't know there was a war coming in a year and a half. Okay. Uh, and the chart, enough, the chart <laughs> just told you everything. Yeah. The momentum yeah. charts broke out and then the price charts followed. And virtually you could throw a dart at any commodity and it went up. It wasn't just oil. It was corn, wheat, soybeans, sugar, you name it, throw a dart and it went up. Uh, we think there's a second leg coming. I think so too, yeah. And you know, and if the Fed does want to taper and print again, it's not going where they want it to go this time. It's going to go into an asset category that's still cheaply priced. And also more into gold. And, and I don't think that commodities are going to match gold. Uh, they didn't match gold in the 1980 bull market. Yeah, they went up with gold in those final years of that, that inflationary period but they didn't match gold or silver. 
The the beauty about technical analysis that I love so much is that it's history, right? And Nick and I are huge like advocates. Like we study the past because whatever is going to happen in the future is probably going to get repeated or sorry, whatever's happened in the past is most likely going to repeat it. I mean, we know the whole adage, the Mark Twain quote, all that stuff, but technical analysis, I mean, all you have to do is just look at the chart historically. I do, you know, I pretty basic support resistance. What was the last breakout? What was the last breakdown? And to your point, you know, the commodity stuff, especially with like natural gas, even oil right now, you, you look at what's happening. All you have to do is just take a look at what the momentum indicators are telling you. And then you know that even if a news headline comes, that's totally irrelevant. What I do find fascinating though, is that there's all these macro experts talking about how there's uh, going to be a copper shortage. Um, electrification is coming into play about how lithium is, is, is in a shortage, but you don't have to t- listen to those guys. You just have to look at what's happening at it, from a technical standpoint to make that conclusion. So Going forward, I mean, looking what what gold and silver are potentially on the run of doing, like, what do you see as a huge opportunity for investors to really be hedged in this environment? I've been saying this for past year and a half or so on silver, and so far I've not been right because silver hasn't exploded, but I also haven't reached the level. We just reached the level, by the way, uh, this month that does tell me we're now engaged. Historically, let's go back and look at gold first. Go back 50 years and you'll find that there were three prior bull markets that we put them on a logarithmic scale chart were basically six-fold increases in price from bear low to bull high or seven to eight-fold. That would be the 1970s to 1975, 1976 to 1980, the year 2000 to 2011. Those were six, seven, and eight full bull, bull trends, multiples in price, okay? Forget the reasons, okay? So in 50 years, it's happened three times in actually less than 50 years. That's not irregular then. It's not something that happened, you know, once, once in a lifetime. It happened three times in, in my career, okay? Therefore, if gold went up another eightfold or sevenfold, now those are the last two or eightfolds, where was its last bear low? Its last bear low was in 2015 at 1,050. Okay, $8,000 gold would be merely another eightfold move. And you say, oh, it happened a fourth time. Okay, so let's forget the reasons behind all this, which we think are extraordinary. You know, maybe gold's going to 50,000, but forget that. But look in the past, you see three of these heartbeats that are eightfolds. Okay, if we have an eightfold again, and we certainly have justification, gold could get 8,000. Okay, forget that for the moment. Now go back and look at the ratio. And a lot of people do the silver gold ratio. We do it as a percent. So what we do is we divide the price of silver into gold. And if you go back that same period of time, you'll find there was one time back in 1980, uh, excuse me, the 70s, I think it was, but silver was six and a half percent of the price of gold. Then it came back down to the one, two percent zone. And multiple times, in the, the, the following decades, it's gotten up to two and a half to three percent over two and a half to three percent of the price of gold. Almost routinely. In other words, if you looked at the spread chart, you said, Oh, gee, that looks like a regular heartbeat. Okay, right now we're at 1.3 percent of the price of gold. Silver is. If silver went to two percent or three percent of the price of gold, and gold ever happened to go to the 8,000 level, you do the math. Mm-hmm. We're talking a couple hundred dollars silver. Okay, now, when you look at a silver price chart, forget that ratio, which speaks in itself. Twice in its history, it's reached 50 bucks. This is in the Bunker Hunt days back in the, you know, mid-70s and, and, and 1980. And, and then in uh, 2011, it reached 50 again. We've since come down into the low teens again. Now we're 25 bucks, 26. We had a surge into the summer of 2020 that took silver from the teens up to almost $30. It then pulled back, then went back up to 30 again in early 2021. And create while gold went sideways in this range, which it briefly pierced, as Dan noticed a while ago, and it broke through the bottom of that range late last year. 
Silver had a downtrending tube. If you look, I'm talking price chart now, and even momentum. So while gold had this sideways range, and gold miners and silver miners and silver itself were in sort of a downtrending channel, lasting two and a half years, silver just broke through the top of that channel. It did it the end of March, early April, around the 25 level, which is where we are now. Even the price chart is telling us that the period of time that we've just had the last two and a half years of picking its teeth, so to speak, while gold again went sideways, mostly. Silver had a downtrending tube. Well, silver's broken through that. Now, I think that the spread relationship between silver and gold has now reasserted itself. And if you go back in history, you'll find that when gold goes up in net price or goes down in net price, silver will beat it on the upside and also underperform it on the downside. So during the last two years, while silver's retreated more than gold, yes, that's true. But now silver's reasserted itself. So I think not only is there a distinct chance that we could see silver do a Bitcoin by Bitcoin, you know what happened in 2021? You know, Bitcoin went from what, under 10,000 to 70,000. Did it in what, less than a year, okay? That game's over, okay. Silver could easily do that and just get on a reasonable parity to gold in the process. So my focus right now, and I've never been so narrow. <laughs> I agree, you know, you should be broad, dude. You should, you know, position here, position there. I've never been so narrowly focused. I think silver is the market to watch now in terms of percentage potential gains. So, so that by, by that estimation, uh, Michael, what you're suggesting is that silver has the potential to move three to four times where it's currently at right now. So we could potentially see like 75, I mean, at a peak, $75. Uh, no, or, no, even 10 times. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't shock me if you saw silver at a couple hundred dollars. Okay. Because um, if, if gold, for example, and the excuses are there, and as far as we're concerned, gold is going to explode. Uh, we think it's technicals argue for it. Momentum argues for it before price. Usually momentum will lead price technicals. Even the price chart. Now, you made a new high weekly close in gold history a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you knew it, but the highest weekly close in 2020 was 2010-90. We had a weekly close at 2011-90. Okay, so no big deal. But you actually made a new high weekly close for gold in history a couple of weeks ago. And we're just hovering there quietly right now. Uh, I think gold is set to explode another, at least another routine seven to eight fold move. Again, measuring from the 2015 low. Well, if that's the case and silver just goes back to an, like a normal percent relation to gold, two and a half to three percent. Again, with something it's seen so routinely, it's almost you know ridiculous. Think then if so, gold were eight thousand, silver be you know you do the math, okay? Yeah, okay. Well, three hundred three hundred dollars for yeah. And and, and is that, that is that crazy? Is that really crazy? Well, if Bitcoin can go from under ten thousand to seventy thousand, you know, in effect, an unbacked currency. Okay. Admittedly, it's it's not a, a fiat currency. In other words, you can't just print as many bitcoins as you can dollars. Okay, so that's a virtue. But silver's backed by something. Okay, and if it comes to life again, and we think it's come to life already. Our final buy signal was when it crossed through twenty five recently. Um, we think that the move to take out the thirty highs that we saw the last couple of years is is probably within the next couple of months. But once you get above the highs of 2020 and 2021, which were both either side of $30, there's a void mm -hmm. on the price charts. You got to go back and find the two prior peaks at 50 bucks and 50 bucks. So there's a $20 void there. The and price chart that, technicians there's don't, there's nothing to sell against. Price chart guys won't know what to do. It's a vacuum. So and it could even break above that, yeah, which is there, even crazier. There's, nothing, just, there's no resistance until you get to yeah. 50 again. Well, yeah. we think the 50 is a joke. Okay, but anyway. So <laughs> I'm very narrowly focused. I've never been so narrowly focused in my entire career. And so far, the evidence that I've seen, especially over the last, it's coming up off that September low. Silver was $17.20 or so at that low. 
it's now, you know, 25, 26. Okay. It's had a percent move is a lot bigger than what gold is at. Yeah. Gold's back to its high, but silver percent move has been 45% move off that low. Gold's had a 25% move off that bear low of last September. And the gold miners, by the way, which have acted like dogs all during the last two years of correction in silver and sideways in gold, they've, they've been beat hard. Their percent gains more like 60% measured from the September low. So I think the place to look is, yeah, watch gold. It's the mama. Mm -hmm. But look at the little dogs on the leash because silver and the gold and silver miners are coming back. Yeah. And I think that's the better place to be. Uh, well, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely seeing it, especially with some of the juniors right now. But Nick, go ahead. No, what I would say was um, I wanted to get kind of like <clears> – <throat> I want to bring a little bit more into your philosophical perspective and ask you a little bit, because like Dan and I, myself, you know, we're basically, we're, we're basically libertarians as well. So like if we were back in the day, we would have been, you know, maybe part of your crew or we would have been, you know, subscribed to your newsletter back then. But basically the, the question I want to ask was, you know, politically and philosophically, you know, you know, how are you seeing the world right now? And how is that kind of impacting the way you're seeing the, the outlook of gold? Gold's coming into its perfect time and place in history. Okay. It's had other times, but this is the more perfect I've ever seen. I think we're in, if you've read the book, we're in part three of Atlas Shrugged right now. Remember, it's all the bullshit of decades of stupidity, policy, coercive policy, monopoly policy from above, where instead of individuals making their own Horses setting their own directions voluntarily. They're more or less coerced into homogenized direction in many respects by government. Central planning. Yeah, central planning in, in many subtle ways. It doesn't have to be at the point of an overt gun. It can be done other ways, okay? The Federal Reserve, in effect, has a gun, but they don't show it. I mean, you can't fight them. You know, they control the money unit, okay, and the treasury. Ultimately, if those are errors, those errors get exposed and chaos comes from the error. Pain comes from the error, both on a macro level and a micro level. We think it's global. Some countries will suffer less than we will. We think the U.S. is probably going to suffer more than most, mainly because the nature of the bubble we created over the dozen years was much bigger in the paper asset category than it was in Europe, for example or in China even. So we think the pain here will be worse. We think there's certain variables out there that are, we, we've mentioned them over the last couple of years and we don't mention them too much because I don't want to get in trouble. We're not advocating anything, okay? I don't want NSA to say who oh, he's advocating this, okay? But the word secession is coming up more and more. In fact, there's counties in Oregon that want to secede from parts of Oregon. In fact, the county I live in in Colorado has talked about seceding from Colorado and joining Wyoming. No, there's not much traction for it, but you know, it's talked about more so than ever in history. Al Ten Alberta, Alberta is trying to get out of Canada. That's that's sort of. I the, didn't know the, that. Didn't. Right there. There's also the Texas, right? <laughs> Where in Texas they're trying to remove themselves from the federal government, so they don't well, have to be liable. I understand Texas is considering issuing its own digital but gold-backed currency. Mm. Well. When a state issues its own money unit, that in form on a micro level is a secession. They're saying, we're seceding from your monopoly money unit. Okay, It's not declaring a war, but it's saying, hey, we don't like your money unit. You're not going to control our lives through your money unit. We're going to have a gold-backed money unit. That's the, a secession. The trust, yeah, the trust to, is gone. We have Ted the rules trying to secede, secede from, the, from the United States with the BRICS and everything like that, you know? It's the, the unification is over. It's breaking up. We're going the other way. Uh, you were saying Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, yeah. I think nine months to 12 months ago in a speech in Texas, semi-jokingly, but then he sort of corrected himself at the end, used the word secession. And he then subtly after he said, yeah, I was joking, but you know, actually if things don't work out, that's a possibility. Okay. Uh, the ninth most influential think tank in the United States, ranked by an independent entity, is the Von Mises Institute mm. in Alabama. It's the Austrian School of Economics. 
Uh, in fact, they reviewed my book heartily. Okay, so uh, the new libertarian. Anyway, uh, about every other issue they put out discusses forms of secession, and I don't mean civil war type stuff. Talking about you know where well like you mentioned the, the Texas money or Alberta wanting to secede from Canada, these subtle ways in which secession can occur, and. I don't know really what's so wrong with the world in which it's very diverse. You know, some people claim they like diversity and yet they want uniformity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're, they're contradictory in that regard. What's wrong with great diversity? What's wrong with, you know, different countries in Europe having different social economic policies so that, you know, you as a potential resident who might move from the US and move to Switzerland or might move to Sweden you know, you have great choice instead of it all being unified. And so sure enough in Denmark, you know, you've seen this rebellion by the farmers, which actually got violent, mm-hmm. where the central government wanted to green them with coercive policies. And they literally bought a tank, the farmers did. And no, it wasn't armed. It was just a means of protesting. And then they recently had a national election where the farmers party which was like a minority party from nowhere, suddenly now controls the government. And they're going to abolish all these green rules from above. That in a form was a form of secession done through voting. But you're seeing this kind of fragmentation in a lot of places. And I'm going to suspect, I'm going to throw out two ideas here. One is the dollar. Why do we have a global reserve currency? What a silly notion. Considering that if you're at a bank, you're a major bank moving money around or a major company or at a large individual or a portfolio manager, at a push of a button, you can move from dollars to yen to euro to Bitcoin to whatever you want. And if you change your mind, you can move it again. You don't need a place to hide all the time. This isn't like when the UK, the, you know, the British pound sterling you know, when ships moved around the world with sails on them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where you had a, a reserve currency. What do you need a monopoly currency of trade for? And sure enough, the Chinese and the Russians, through their semi-union, have started to break that up, mm-hmm. especially with China progress in the Mideast, where oil can be bought with yuan. Mm-hmm. So this notion of having a monopoly currency That could be the demise of the dollar, which we expect, by the way, as well. But think about our domestic politics. And this has not been brought up on CNBC or Fox Business News or any of these, even Bloomberg, I don't think. Look at the political horizon. Everybody admits we're a divided country. Never been so divided. Okay, everybody admits that fact. But they don't admit the political outcome that's about to occur. There's two avenues here. One, Trump gets the GOP nomination. And, you know, he's the leader right now. And he's just, you know, because he's being indicted by this and that. His popularity is rising. So let's say he gets the nomination. When I was in high school, I was a Goldwater right. You know, the original conservative part of the Republican Party. I was a high school kid. And then the Reagan echoed that. There's a lot of old GOP folks who are of that ilk. They're conservative ideological, but they don't like Trump. They hate Trump. They don't trust him. They think he's a personality cult and not an intellectual leader of a conservative idea. Okay, I can define that. I think most pollsters would. It's 20 to 25% of that party. If Trump gets the nomination, you can count on them not showing up to vote. Now, remember, they voted for him in 2020. And he marginally lost. You can't take 20% of the GOP and put it on the sideline. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not going to vote for the Democrat, but they're certainly not going to vote yeah. for Trump or Trumpers. He can't and, win. And and he, how can he win? The, Name- the, GOP, the GOP are also known for voting on election day, right? So it's the show up, yeah. right? <laughs> so if you're saying that 25% yeah. of the GOP registered GOPs don't show yeah. up, they stay home. Okay. What have you got oh, left okay. at that point? Reverse it. Let's okay. say he doesn't get the nomination. 
let's say something happens between now and let's say the next six months where he perceives that for some reason he's not going to get it. Now, ask yourself this question. Do you think he's going to retire to Mar-a-Lago no. and, and, and just look no. at his picture on the wall? No, no. he's no. going to run an independent party. It'll be the MAGA party, whatever. If he runs an independent party, yes, he will bring 25, maybe 35% of the GOP will follow him religiously to that new party. But what does that mean for the other part of the GOP? Right. Whoever they put up can't possibly win the election because mm -hmm. Trump took too much away from them. Therefore, it means almost you could throw a dart. Whoever the Democrat is, he or she could win mm -hmm. because I don't know how the GOP can be united. And go back and look at the popular vote in any national election where you, you can't take 20% of one of, the, one of the two parties and retire them. Yeah. That party will not win. It's impossible. So I don't know how the Republicans are going to win. But if Trump gets the nomination or if he sets up, I don't know the answer to that except yeah. to say, okay, now, okay, now what if that is perceived to be the outcome? My God, we're not going to win. Okay, yeah. you're a Texan. You're a hardcore conservative Floridian. You're from the South, you know, the belt in between those two. The Sun Belt, too. Okay. What are you going to say? Oh, well, I guess we're just going to have to sit back and keep paying our taxes to whoever the Democrat president's going to be. Continue the policies, continue to pay the taxes, which were, you know, they haven't really dropped in any presidential, you know, since mm -hmm. Kennedy, maybe. He wanted to cut taxes, by the way. Uh, what are these folks going to do who've already come up with the idea of secession? They've already heard about it, not from high school days, but, you know, Cruz mentioned it. The uh, academic entity like the Mises Institute has discussed it on a very high level. Um, you know, it, it, Texas wants to have its own currency. Uh, you know, you're going to have all kinds of discussions going on that nobody's expecting. Is that priced into the stock market? No. Not, a, not at all. Not and at you all. know, it's such, I, you just sort of got the, the gears going here because it's interesting because it, it, what it's going to do is it's going to create, unfortunately, more division. Yeah. And I think it just creates, obviously, way more uncertainty to that. But, you know, it's happening in Canada here. Like, there's a lot of Canadians, by the way, because of all the political theater that's been going on and we've had something really similar it's just trump is like a personality like the whole world knows who trump mm. is but there was a conservative who split off and created his own party which mm. essentially actually split the conservative vote from the last election but what you're seeing here there's more division and a lot of people are fleeing the country. They're just like, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm just going to set up shop, I don't know, in Panama. I'm going to go to the Bahamas. I'm going to go to Singapore, Indonesia. You're just having this massive Florida. migration happening too. That's right? so, micro secession. Yeah, it's like um, it's like a it, it, it's like a, a micro version of the, well, what I call it the Berlin Wall effect, where you're gonna have like a division where people are seeking more capitalist mechanics versus more socialist mechanics, and you're just gonna have a line divided between people, and then I guess it's a matter of time until people realize that the socialist side, everybody's gonna run back to the capitalist side as they did with the Berlin Wall. Yeah, it's what works, and you know I, I don't mind that. You know, fine, you want to have a socialist country, go have one. You know. But don't don't coercively you know, yeah. encompass us all. And yeah. I think that's where we're headed. And to some extent, I have to credit Trump. You know, I'm not a Trumper because he's not a libertarian at all. He's not even an ideological conservative. Remember, he was the guy who told the Fed to print, print, print and take mm -hmm. rates to zero. This is before COVID even. Yeah. OK, so uh, and, and now the Republicans are saying they don't want to pass the, uh, the budget, you know, with a rubber stamp. They did it every time Trump wanted the budget, they rubber stamped it. And yet his budget was sharply higher each year. So, you know, I, there's a lack of integrity here. And as a libertarian, I'm sort of out of it. No. Except I see this going on. And to some extent, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Fragmentation could be good. I guess you need an extreme scenario to kind of make people wake up to what's happening but then the question like as a younger generation the question for me is 
at what point is there no point of return where it's, you've kind of doomed yourself and it just, there's no reversing hmm. because other nations have taken the opportunity to kind of feed off of your demise. Yeah. I, it's, it, it's hard to predict that. Uh, you know, I, I kind of don't expect China to continue as it is because there's China historically has been a, a trading society thousands of years. It's not a, you know, not, they might've had emperors and stuff like that, but the control over the population they have now, they didn't have over the thousands of years. It was a trading society. It's historically that way. So really it's only since I was born 1949 when Mao took over that you've had anything different from what China used to be. It wouldn't shock me that China devolves back to a more market society. And think about this, you know, a lot of people in the party there um, didn't particularly like the way she was going in terms of policy. And, you know, and, and one of the ways he reflected this was he ended that COVID stuff. The controls he put on, a lot of people didn't like that, including party members. Maybe uh, they I, wanted uh, somebody out of office too in the U.S. Maybe that was the reason. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> Just a thought, not, yeah. not, not, not a fact, but anyway. All, go kinds ahead. <laughs> of, all kinds of variables can happen out there that we can't predict. But I think that ultimately they'll be good because usually, you know, childbirth isn't painless, okay? <laughs> put it that way. Uh, and the, part three of Atlas Shrug was painful. And especially the politics is going to get worse when the economy gets worse. Because when people feel more personal pain, then they express it more politically. Yeah, they so, think it's like a political hero. They think the government's the savior. So, and then these bureaucrats, they have this like God complex where they think they can be the savior, but that's just the issue. It's like, don't fall into that trap. You demanding more government and then feeding off of that is exactly what's just going to keep bringing us down lower and lower. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a wild, wild west in a way. Well, it's a learning experience. And, and yeah. you know, it's, I think, therefore, it's good. You know, it's not bad that things break up if people are seeking free outcomes. Yeah. Well, and, and, and people can learn from the right things and the wrong things instead of being homogenized into one course of action. Uh, yeah. uh, fragmentation can be good. No. Yeah. No, I agree to an extent, you know, like me and dad and myself over the last three years, I don't think I've ever learned so much in my life, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything that's been going on to the extent of the amount of learning that I've gotten to do, like the, the, the rabbit hole of going down Austrian economics and Keynesian and learning more of how to overlap history to the behaviors of what's happening now to the current present. It's mm -hmm. like, wow, like I understand things to a whole new and, level. And make I'm, money from it and make exactly money from it too. That's, that's, yeah, that's no, the I think that's, that's important. You want to survive and there are ways to make money on this because and it's, not, it's, it's not bad to make money off of it because that's just reality. You're going need, with reality. And, you uh, need to survive out of this. And if you don't so have we, money- We need to restate again that we're not advocating anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, Correct. <laughs> We're just, we're philosophizing about possibilities that exist mm -hmm. independent of us we're observers. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I, 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 I really, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, Michael. Um, and, uh, we would, we would love to have you back on again. I know that cause we're coming up on an hour here, but, um, you know, if there's one thing, if there's one thing you could leave, I guess, sort of younger people coming into this crazy market, what's that one message? Oh, uh, Read my book, <laughs> The New Libertarianism. <laughs> I go to Amazon, I, The New I, Libertarianism. I, but but uh, read Atlas Shrugged, especially. Uh, the woman influenced me greatly. And my wife and I actually were very lucky to bump into her in a corner. We used to live in Manhattan, not far from where she lived. We didn't know where she lived. We just knew that we lived somewhere near East 34th Street and Park Avenue. And we accidentally bumped into her one day in a corner and had a little conversation with her. But uh, no anyway, way. Atlas Shrugged is uh, written in the 50s, but... Uh, I wish you were alive to see that it's it's actually happening. No, happening. Iran. No, nice. Thank you, hey, Michael. Is uh, awesome to have you on, and thank you for giving us more of your time than you had planned. And more, uh, more wisdom, more wisdom, <laughs> because this is this is what we need right now to really pass yeah. down. But listen, everything is on the chart at the end of the day, right? And right. Uh, the chart, the chart will tell you pretty much everything right. you need to know, right? It will. Awesome. Yeah, so thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time on the New Gen Mindset Podcast. Thank you, guys. <laughs>